1 Timothy chapter 2, reading from verse 1. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel and with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Amen. May God bless that reading of his own a precious word. Well, as was advertised Sunday morning, <laughs> our thoughts this evening, perhaps on this uh, Jubilee day, would turn to this thought that uh, the Apostle Paul expresses here in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. He says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. And to begin this, let me take you back some 135 years. Uh, the date is the 20th of June, it's almost exactly 135 years, uh, to the 20th of June, 1887. We go to the Liverpool Anglican Cathedral and the preacher is the then Bishop of Liverpool, Dr John Charles Ryle. Many of us know the works and readings of J.C. Ryle. The occasion on this particular occasion was the 50th anniversary of Queen Victoria's ascension to the throne. So it's quite an apt topic for this evening. This took place, the ascension to the throne took place on the 20th of June 1837 and let me share with you as we begin our study this evening Dr. Ryle's opening remarks. He says this, the words of our text are taken from a page of scripture which is eminently suited to the solemn occasion which gathers us together, the jubilee of our gracious sovereign Queen Victoria. And again, these next words have been repeated so many times over the last days. A royal jubilee is a very rare event in history. In all probability, there is 
there is no one in England which any of us will ever live to see again. How odd. The 50th anniversary was referred to in that way. And so he says, let us lay this seriously to heart in today's service of prayer and praise. Almost prophetic words, aren't they? It's incredible. I've just looked up. Since the Act of Union in 1707, there have been ten monarchs in this land who have lived for more than 50, have reigned rather, for more than 50 years. And at least three of those have been queens. Queen Elizabeth I, of course, reigned for 44 years plus. Queen Victoria reigned for 63 years plus. And of course, Queen Elizabeth II, as we all know, has reigned for 70 years. And in fact, if she managed to continue her reign, if God spares her, until 2024, about 18 months hence, she will probably, be, or she will definitely become the longest serving monarch anywhere in the world in history. Uh, that uh, attribute is held currently by uh, the King of Thailand, who I think died a little short while ago. He reigned for 74 years and a few, 72 years and a few months. But you see, before we get into this study on kings, and those in authority into the detail of praying for kings and those in authority, perhaps we can think of some of the thoughts that Paul might have had uh, when he was describing this instruction, when he was giving this instruction, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions of giving and thanks be made for all men. We might say here, uh, that Paul is actually saying prayer is a priority for all Christians, for all men. He's saying quite clearly, isn't he, that the duty of Christians here is a primary duty and it's a duty to pray and to pray for all men. And we shall come shortly uh, to the specific categories here for those in authority. Now, I think any of us who are aware of the current situation in the churches up and down this land, I think it would be, it is evident, isn't it, to many of us that today in the church, of whatever denomination, that prayer is now a very low priority. We have seen so many churches, haven't we, give up the evening service. So many churches have given up the midweek service of prayer and Bible study. And in so doing, uh, these fellowships have reduced their opportunities for corporate prayer by 66%, basically. The amount of corporate prayer offered in our day and age is but a small percentage of that of churches in the generations leading up. You see, uh, they have missed these opportunities to offer up prayers to God for their fellow men and this seems to me to be, in many ways, a shameful disobedience to the instructions of Scripture. Paul is quite clear. I exhort, first of all, uh, we should pray for all men. 
There's a wonderful hymn by William Cooper and two verses of that hymn more or less describe what I'm trying to say. He says, restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian's armour bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And he goes on. When Moses stood with arms stretched wide, success was found on Israel's side. But when through weariness they failed, that moment Amalek prevailed. And so as I say, we've seen the issue described here in poetry, but in very graphic details. By reducing or even ceasing to offer prayer, by ceasing the practice of prayer, we have in many ways abandoned the fight against evil, both corporately and personally. And indeed the prayers for all men and for all those in authority have foundered, have faded away. Secondly, the scriptures teaches us that it is through faith that we receive, through fear, through prayer, sorry, we receive the blessings of faith and the ability to resist the evil one day by day. See how Cooper says in his hymn, how easy it is for the Christian to put Satan on the back foot. Because even the weakest saint on his knees will put Satan to flight. And so we can begin to see how important corporate prayer and how important individual prayer is in many ways to the work of Christ on this earth. The seriousness of the lack of prayer then is seen perhaps in that incident that Cooper refers to. Uh, It's found in Exodus 17. We don't have time to look at it. But what we do read is that when Moses' arms began to fail, then Amalek prevailed. So then, given that the practice of prayer for all men has declined so dramatically within the church, it's not surprising then, is it, that the nation itself has quickly and deeply fallen into spiritual and moral decline. Standards of behaviour, and we've seen this so recently, This is such a topical issue. Standards of behaviour in both public and private life have declined. And most importantly, I think, the notion of absolute truth has almost been airbrushed out of society's consciousness. Perhaps the final comment in the book of Judges more than adequately describes our society today. Words that reflect a declining culture. The judges says this, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And surely in those days and in our day today, because this is true, because there are no absolutes, then Amalek has certainly prevailed and we have seen this in the way in which unbiblical laws, unbiblical practices, acceptance by society of unbiblical practices have become so prevalent. So we must indeed listen to Paul and be exhorted that we should offer supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks for all men because all men ultimately are God's creation. 
But let's move on from the general, that review of prayer, uh, to the specific. And Paul goes on here in this verse and he says, Prayer giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. In his message that day, all those years ago in 1887, Dr. Ryle was quick to point out, and I think this is worth noting, quick to point out that at the time that Paul wrote these words to Timothy, he was in effect asking the church to pray for such men, and history has revealed them to be evil men, such men as the Emperor Nero, the regional governors such as Felix and Festus, Pontius Pilate even, the Jewish king, King Agrippa, the high priests Anaphus, Annas and Caiaphas, all were in, in ascendancy at this time. And we have to ask the question, why would Paul exhort prayer for such men? Not one of them had been sympathetic to the work of the gospel. And each of them in their own way had cruelly oppressed the early church. And perhaps at the back of Paul's mind, as he gives this instruction, might have been the words recorded by Daniel when the meaning of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar was revealed to him. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, we read these words. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and seasons. Here's the important line. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells within. So then we have to ask, what is our response to Paul's instruction here to pray for kings and all those in authority. Well, just a little side, surprisingly, and perhaps in contrast to many other countries, Great Britain as a nation has a positive response. Now, you might think this is rather strange to say that. But you see, every time our national anthem is sung, in effect, a prayer is offered up for our Queen. You think of the verse, first verse, God save our gracious Queen. Long live our noble Queen. Few monarchs of this country have ever lived to the age of 96. God save the Queen, send her victorious, happy and glorious. Long to reign over us. She is now in history the longest reigning monarch. God save the Queen, and the Queen herself in public broadcasts has expressed her understanding of the teaching of Christ, of her way in which it's supported her own personal faith. So in many ways it's remarkable, isn't it, to note how many of the requests in our national anthem have been answered. So in many ways the national anthem is completely different from nearly all other, as far as I can make out, uh, close European or Western world national anthems. And if you were to do a study, and I've done a quick study, I won't take up too much time, 
If you take a quick study of a few Western national anthems, they don't focus anything on the national leadership, on the head of state. They tend to focus on freedoms, liberties, past victories, hopes and desires of the individual nation. Let me read you the words the American Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, say, can you see by dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed as the twilight's lights gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streamed. What has that got to do? We wonder. If you look at um, if you look at the Canadian national anthem, it's very strange. This, O Canada, our home and native land, through patriot love thou dost in us command. We see thee rising, fair dear land, the true north, strong and free, and stand on guard, O Canada. We stand on guard for thee. I won't go on. I looked at the um, French Marseillaise. Got nothing. It's written hundreds of years ago. It's got nothing to do with giving thanks to God. Doesn't even mention God. The only European national anthem that I could found that even mentioned God was the Dutch national anthem. And even then, it's based on a 15-verse uh, poem about one of the ancient kings, Willem. And it's the only one I can find that even begins to mention God. No other Western nation anthem focuses on the head of state in such a way as the British national anthem. Let me just, just to support what we're saying, let me quote one paragraph from the little booklet uh, that Paul was circulating on Sunday. It's a very interesting little booklet. It brings many issues into focus. And it says this, that Her Majesty has reigned for so long is a singular evidence of the Lord's protecting mercies. In time of immense social, political and economic upheaval, she has remained a constant and fixed feature in our nation. For this, we ought to and do give thanks to our loving Heavenly Father for his goodness and kindness. And I might add, both to her and to us as a nation. But let me just take you back then to that message that Dr. Ryle gave in June 87 and share with you perhaps some of the thoughts fairly briefly he brought out as to why, in his view, we should pray for kings. And, of course, just as importantly, for those in authority, which in our land, of course, uh, the ministers of Her Majesty's government uh, of the day in which we live. And he says this, I mean, at the beginning he goes into, he spends some time giving quite an amount of detail of the achievements, if you like, of Great Britain uh, during the 60 or so years, or the 50 years, up until the time of his talk. He speaks of the growth of the empire, he speaks of the growth of churches and missionary societies all this happened during the reign of Queen Victoria from 1837 through to the 1900s he speaks of all the social improvements and we've all heard all those things about the reign of Queen Elizabeth from our televisions from the newspapers so I won't repeat any of those but he said he makes this point he says we should pray for the kings and for those in authority because of the temptations that surround those in power. 
And there is an old saying, isn't it, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And indeed, many in authority get to that position as we again have seen where they consider themselves above the law. When men and women in authority, in the final analysis, are perhaps very lonely beings. You see, despite the weight of evidence that can be presented and the words of advice that are given at times of difficult decision-making, these men, with their sinful, fallen minds, have to make decisions that affect you and I and millions of other people. It's reported many years ago of a man called Buchanan. Now, this Dr Buchanan, as he was at one time, a tutor to James I. And it's reported that when he was lying on his deathbed, he sent a last and final message to the king who he had taught. And he said this, I'm going to a place where few kings and few princes ever came. This is a truth, for even the Saviour said, how hardly shall a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And Buchanan concluded with this comment, how much harder will it be for a king to enter the kingdom of heaven? And I suppose that applies not only to the king, but to those in authority who have a high opinion of themselves who lack humility and place their faith and trust and confidence in themselves. And secondly, he says we should pray for kings and those in authority because of the weight of responsibilities that they're called to under undertake. And he pr produces a list. He says uh, for those in authority, the decisions of how to promote the prosperity of all classes of the population. And of course... This is the, in many ways, the holy grail of government, isn't it? To improve standards of living, to impress people with their skill and purpose so that as people's standard of living increases, so they're more likely to vote for that government again. And then there is a prayer for the wisdom to know when to tighten or loosen the reins of government. It's known that some governments want big government to intrude into the life of the nation because they feel they need to be in control. Others want to roll back the reins of government and let people have freedom to make their choices. And then how to select the best and most able men and women to undertake the great offices of stake. And again, such decisions are to be taken by one fallible occupant in the seat of authority. Well, might the poet have said, Uneasy sleeps the head that wears the crown. And then thirdly, he says, we need to pray for those in authority because given their authority that they have, it is in their power to affect the lives and the way of life of people of the nation that they govern. And again, he gives a short list of the things that might cause pain, suffering. He says it could be an error of judgment in managing a situation. It could be a hasty reliance on tainted or erroneous or biased information. We can look back at the reasons that were given, weren't they, for sending troops to the Gulf War that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction claim that proved to be completely false, completely erroneous. 
And any of these things may bring disaster to the nation and in extreme cases, of course, even war, which will bring bloodshed, increased financial problems and a collapse of the economy and society. And what we can say, can't we, as we look at these things, that as a nation, and most of us have lived for the entire 70 years of the Queen's reign, as a nation, we have experienced a period of relative peace and prosperity during this 70-year reign. There have been times, of course, times of financial crisis, times of severe social unrest, Think back to the miners' strike and other situations, the winter of discontent all those years ago. I remember going to work with paraffin lamps on the desks and no electricity, no power, no buses, no trains, times of severe unsocial unrest. And our armed forces, of course, have been involved in armed conflicts from time to time. Despite these things, we still enjoy the blessings of a basically law-abiding society where indeed general living standards are much higher than at the beginning of a reign and we enjoy things, benefits from society that in many ways our grandparents and even to some extent our parents could only think about. But most importantly, and I think overriding all this, is that we live in a society where the gospel is freely preached and the word of God is freely available. And so we come to this fundamental reason why Paul calls for prayer for kings and those in authority. He goes on to say this, doesn't he, that we may lead a quiet life in all godliness and reverence. And here in this next passage we come to what is the essence or even the quintessence of the heart of the matter. He goes on to say, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The overriding feature, the overriding reason why Paul calls upon us uh, to pray for kings and all in authority is that the gospel of salvation might be continually preached and that the glory of God might increase And so these are, aren't they, the biblical reasons to pray for all men, and particularly for kings and those in authority. Now, as we've said, we ought to, and we do, give thanks for the 70 years reign and the jubilee that we're currently celebrating at this time. However, the reality is, maybe sooner or later, that that reign will come to an end. And another, Prince Charles, will sit on the throne as things stand. But as Christians, as Christians, surely we can turn our eyes away from this earthly jubilee and consider our approaching eternal jubilee. As you will remember, God instituted a year of jubilee, one in every 50 years. We find all this in Leviticus 25. This year of Jubilee was to be a year of rest. We get a four-day bank holiday. A year of rest and restoration. No sowing of crops, no labour, the return of possessions, no oppression of your neighbour. 
This was in the wisdom of Almighty God. It represented a year of hope. To think of those families who gave, because of poverty, gave up their land of inheritance. They could look forward to the Jubilee, knowing that it would all be restored. It was a year of hope after a cycle of seven Sabbath years that the Israelites might look forward to where all things, in the sense, would be completely reset and be as they were at the beginning, the way they were, back to that state. And if we think about this, how this represents uh, the hope of our heavenly jubilee, when all things, in many ways, will be reset. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And nowhere is the state of this jubilee described better, in my view, uh, than in the words of the Apostle John there, in Revelation chapter 20. And so I'd just like to close this evening by reading those few verses from Revelation, sorry, 21. And in many ways they paint the picture for us as we drink in these words and absorb the glories of that eternal jubilee. And so John says this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. What a jubilee. What a year and time of restoration, of recreation, of rest from labours and sorrow and sin and tears. A time of eternal joy, of eternal worship. Most importantly, in the presence of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may God bless his word to